I uh, came to church this morning with the sole objective of just declaring the Word of God. I did not know uh, that I would be uh, mentioned uh, in such kind words. First in the prayer by Brother William Norman, and then by our Minister of Music, Brother Brian Dickens. Um, I've often thought, I don't know where this church would be musically if God hadn't sent him here. I've thought about that a lot. Because I know of churches that don't have the quality, the character of the leader that we do. And I thank God for it. And I thank God that his employer out of college was under the sovereign hand of God. <laughs> God has ways of working things out, doesn't he? For his kingdom. And we does receive the glory and the honor. I also uh, want to mention that I uh, n never had to do this by myself. I have a praying wife, a faithful wife. Uh, I know she prays. Uh, I've known that, I knew that before we got married. There's two things that stood out about her the Word of God and prayer. She's committed to both, and she still is. And she has supported me all these long years. And I'm grateful to have a wife such as Carol. So I would tell a young man, if you're going to go into ministry, ask God to give you a faithful, godly wife. If he doesn't do that, stay out of the ministry. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. I'm using as a subject, uh, a title rather for these verses, Getting Help from the Father. Upon reading Jesus' words here about prayer... It may seem that they are out of place, for they do not appear to have any connection with what precedes them, nor with verse 12 that I just concluded the reading of this text with. But our Lord, I want you to understand, was not speaking randomly. There is rhyme and reason to the words about prayer that he enunciates here in this portion of his sermon. Therefore, the words are here on purpose. They are related. To discern dogs and swines, as Jesus tells us to do in verse 6. To lay up treasure in heaven. Not to be worried about the basic necessities of life. To refuse to be judgmental toward others. To seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to practice our righteousness 
unhypocritically, to love our enemies, to do all that the Sermon on the Mount requires. We need help from the throne of grace. Therefore, our Lord commends us or commands us to obtain this indispensable aid by means of prayer. That's why the words are here. Not only is prayer an imperative for us, Jesus also promises that the Father will answer our request. So our first heading for these verses is this, the promise. Verse 7, ask, the very first word in the English translation of this text, means to make a request for something from someone who has the power or the wherewithal to grant the request. That makes sense, doesn't it? You don't ask somebody who doesn't have it for something they can't give you. We ask our Father. By commanding us to ask, Jesus is in effect telling us that we cannot supply our spiritual needs. We can't do his will apart from supernatural help. And when we ask, we are agreeing with our Lord's inerrant assessment of us. That we can't help ourselves. When we ask, we are being obedient. It's a commandment. It's an imperative. It is not a suggestion that we ask and we seek and we knock. These are imperatives. These are commands from our Lord uh, to do these things. We need to trust and obey. Benjamin Franklin, I believe it is, famously said, God helps those who help themselves. Franklin was wrong. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And we know this with respect to our salvation. Salvation, the word meaning to save or to rescue. We didn't rescue or deliver ourselves from sin's power and Satan's dominion. God did. We cannot supply spiritual help or power to ourselves, from ourselves, to live in according to his commands. The Father is the supplier. So we ask the Father. Another thing we need to remember, it is the Father's desire and will to meet our spiritual needs in order for us to comply with his word. As we continue to look here in the text, we see two additional words here in verse 7, seek and knock. These are metaphors for prayer. And they represent a growing intensity on our part to have our spiritual needs met. And that is so unusual, isn't it? Because we wouldn't think that having our spiritual needs met would be such a priority. But that's the way God is. That's what he wants us to pursue. He wants us to be intense about it. He wants us to pursue it. He wants us to ask him and seek him and knock that we might have what we need from him to be the kind of people that he calls us to be. We're to seek by prayer the ways of God. We want to be like Christ. We want to be like our father and we have to pray. 
And when we seek him in these ways, we're receiving from him what we need. We're empowered to do so. We're to knock. So the other word, knock, not literally knock. I've just said it. It's a metaphor. And what it means is we are to knock metaphorically on heaven's door. We ask him to grant us what we need for practical righteousness. We're to be father. Give me what I need to be able to live the way you want me to live to honor and glorify your name. We must ask. Seek and knock. We must pray. Our lives need to be marked by greater discipleship. A greater imprint of Christ on our life. D.A. Carson, a commentator, writes, quote, Far too often, Christians do not have the marks of richly textured discipleship because they do not ask. End of quote. It should be with the discernible reality of Christ's life being lived out in us. We're increasingly learning from him and following him, mimicking him. We have to ask, God, do for me what I need spiritually to do these things. You need to understand here further in these verses, or in this verse, verse 7, the Greek verbs translated will be given and will be opened are what the theologians like to call theological passives or divine passives. In other words, God has to do it. We've alluded to that already. The Father must do it. The Father will give. The Father will open the doors of heaven. We know this is true because we've been told this by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. His authority as incarnate son of God has given us this promise that God will do this. This is a prayer that he will answer. God will never turn us away when we come to him asking for these realities in our life. He will never say, no, son, no, daughter, I'm not answering that. You want to be more like my son? Yes, I'm going to answer that. You've been commanded to. That's my will for you. Further, we we have to be persistent. This is not a one-off. You don't pray this one time on your prayer list, mark it off and go on to the next item. This is something that requires persistence. The verbs ask, seek, and knock, really can be rendered rightly from the original this way. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. You see, our needs, our need for help in growing disciples is lifelong. Christian lifelong. From the moment of conversion to Jesus Christ until we depart to be with Christ, we're to be asking him, seeking him, knocking that we might be more like him. We should never, ever stop asking, seeking, and knocking. 
we're called to do this. It should be that as older we get, we should keep that up. And we should be, on the very day we die, if we know we're going to die that day, we still ought to be asking him so we can die in a way to glorify him. Verse 8. For everyone who asks, receives. And who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now Jesus repeats what he said here in verse 8. In verse 7, he just told us this. He reiterates the truth that he had just enunciated. He, he makes the promise again. You notice that in verse 8. Why does he do that? So that there wouldn't be any mistaking his meaning. He wants us to get it. That's why he repeats it. The word everyone there needs clarification. Everyone doesn't mean every single individual who decides to pray. <laughs> no, that everyone here is restricted to those who belong to the Father by saving faith in Jesus Christ. The Beatitude people. The people who, uh, you recall in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the people. He is not talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't think they needed it because they thought they had it all together spiritually. The everyone for family members. It's like taking a family photograph and only people who should be in the photograph are family members, non-family members excluded. That's what it's like here. Um, Non-Christians are excluded from this everyone. Only the redeemed have access to the Father. Ephesians 2.18 says this, For through him, speaking of Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Paul, in that text, refers to saved Jews and saved Gentiles who have access to God the Father. They're both in God's household. They're both in his family. They both have access to him anytime they want, anywhere, any day, any hour. Go to him. That's a great privilege being a Christian. You, you need. You wake up in the middle of the night and go to him. Yeah, you don't have to wonder if he's busy. Or if he's sleeping. You can go to him. Anytime, anywhere. We have access. Instant access. To God our Father. Now, Jesus reiterates the promise. He's going to answer this prayer. But I think I need to say this. You know now that these verses are not a blank check. You know that. We've been talking about it. God, through Christ, hasn't given us these verses that we can ask for anything we may want, anything we may chance upon, any desire in our mind or heart. So, uh, uh, you know, he just, some people think that just ask and seek and knock whatever you want. Let me tell you what the problem with that is. First of all, that's not what he's saying. Contextually, you can't sustain that idea. Secondly, we do not have the wisdom to know what is good for us in every circumstance. We are not that smart. 
we don't know what we don't know and we don't know what we don't need which we think we need and we go and asking God for something and thank God he knows better than we do he's infinitely wise and we're finite so in his wisdom and mercy and goodness and love he does not give us whatever happens to come in our minds and say God would you do this no she's not going to do that thank God you all say thank God because if you know you, you'll be thanking him that he doesn't let you. You know what it's like. Your kids, your parents, your kids come to you and say, uh, Dad, Mom, would you do this? And you know that's not good for them. And you're a good parent. You say, boy, shut up. No, you, you, you don't say that, but you know. You know. <laughs> now, you don't say that, but you know what I'm saying. You say, no, daughter, no, son, I'm not doing that. Because you're wiser than your children. You've lived longer. You know what could mess them up. And you protect them. Do you not think God's far, 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 far greater than we are? What God is doing, his will provides the boundary. God's will determines what he does. And in this context, he is making disciples. He is desiring to deepen our discipleship. And to that end, he promises to answer prayers that are designed by him and we're commanded to ask him to be what he wants us to be. Be like himself and like his son. That's the promise. The next thing is the principle. Verses 9 through 11. In verse 9. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? This is a principle about the father's character. And Jesus used this illustration from earthly fatherhood to disclose truth about God, our heavenly father. You see there in verse 9 the word or. Jesus is saying, in effect, if the preceding considerations that I've just given you in verses 7 and 8 do not fully convince you, look at it this way. An earthly father provides for the physical needs of his children, do they, does he not? Hmm. Verse 9. What man among you? Is he speaking to this crowd? This audience is there by the Sea of Galilee, the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, what man among you? And the crowd's listening to our Lord say this. Among you, who, when his son asked for a loaf, you know, some bread, would give him a stone. You say, why would Jesus say that? Reading this loaf and a stone, you think, uh, I don't get the, what's the connection? In the first century in Israel, Small loaves were the normal daily diet. Interestingly, they resemble in shape and color the small round stones that littered the countryside. You can literally see them. There they are. And they look like loaves or a loaf. It was such a stone or stones that the devil said to Jesus, turn these stones into bread. 
He didn't just pull that out of the air. He was looking at the stones, and Jesus saw the stones and said, Jesus, you are the Son of God, so turn them into bread. So because the people were familiar with it, you could confuse a loaf with a stone. Jesus said, what father would do that? Will he give him a stone? No. He wouldn't do that. In verse 10, Jesus says, <laughs> marine life and a reptile. Or if he asks for a fish, Will he not give him a snake? Will he give him a snake, will he? No, 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 he won't do that. Fish, like snakes, propel themselves in um, winding movement. That, that's why Jesus said that. Fish in the water, like that. You see them. Snakes wind as well. So the people grasped it. A small stone. Now get this, a small stone. If a father would do something like this to his child, a small stone, if the kid ate it, would break his teeth. And an improperly prepared and cooked snake's venom could kill the child. And no normal father on earth would ever do that to his son. He gives good things to his child. Now, look what Jesus says in verse 11. If you then, being able, let's stop at the second comma here. The word then, Jesus draws an inference or conclusion from the previous illustrations. You'll notice something in the text. Jesus says, if you then, being evil, you earthly fathers. You notice he didn't say, we then being evil. The reason he didn't say, we then being evil, because he is not in that category of earthly fathers. He's not evil. The descriptor evil cannot be applied to Jesus Christ. The disciples were redeemed and forgiven, but sin remains a powerful operative principle in believers. Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. I believe that text is talking about there in Romans, Paul and his struggle with indwelling sin. And that's the reality among even Christians. We still struggle with indwelling sins. If you say, if you believe the word of God, say amen. amen. It's true. It's not that we do evil all the time. We don't because we're Christians, but we struggle with it because we're still in the flesh and we're fallen. We have the flesh in us rather. And so we have to deal with that. Still a principle operating in us. Evil or sin. Jesus, on the other hand, I want you all to get this because there are people. I just read a survey the other day and it's just astounding that people who claim to be evangelicals or Christians think that Jesus sin or did sin. What nonsense is this? Jesus, God, who he is, incarnate, morally perfect. Scripture amply testifies to his moral perfection. He didn't sin, couldn't sin. If he had sinned, you're lost. You're going to hell. But he didn't sin. 
He couldn't sin because he's morally perfect, infinitely perfect. Scripture amply attests to this reality. I want to give you at least one place to turn to, and if you will go with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. One verse there in Hebrews chapter 7. I want to read it and just briefly draw some things out from it to show you uh, the divine testimony to the purity of of our Savior. Hebrews 7 verse 26, I should tell you, that's the place there. In the book of Hebrews, the 26th verse of chapter 7, it says this, for it was fitting or necessary for us to have such a high priest, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. You notice how he is described here, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He was holy. Meaning he was pious in regard to his relationship with God. Unpolluted. He's innocent. My Bible tells me there's no evil in him. No malice toward man. According to a study Bible I read, he's undefiled, free from moral defilement, separated from sinners, no sin nature from which any sinful act could emerge. See how the Bible depicts it? Utterly pure. There are other places, for example, 1 John 2, 1 says about Jesus, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is righteous by nature. Inherently righteous. Contrast him with us. We're righteous by imputation. We were given his righteousness in terms of being declared righteous. God treats us as if we had lived Christ's life. And then we grow in righteousness. But we're not inherently righteous because all of us came here as sinners, right? Jesus Christ came here righteous. 1 John 3, 3, he is called pure, sinless perfection, totally uncontaminated by any moral pollution. If you understand who Jesus is, you'll understand you can't ever say rightly that he was evil. If you do, you've blasphemed him. You've dishonored him. And you don't know him. Back in Matthew 7. The evil ones, that's us. An evil earthly father will not harm his child with things that are destructive. They know how, verse 11, to give good gifts to their children. And you notice here how much more 
Will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? How much more Jesus reasons from the lesser to the greater. Semitic reasoning they employed. Your heavenly Father gives good gifts to those who ask him. The spiritual gift, the things he's talking about here are spiritually good. Uh, the word good, agathos, in the original, moral goodness, righteous character, deeds, and words. That's what we've been talking about. That's the good that he's talking about his life. He's about material things. He is talking about spiritual things. Moral goodness, righteous character, righteous deeds, righteous words. Now, in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, you may look here. And you can see something, a parallel passage. It's parallel truth. Same truth, but a different occasion um, that our Lord is speaking. But expands on what he says there in the Sermon on the Mount, here in Luke chapter 11 and verse 13. And you'll see it here. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him. Here's expanded understanding here. Let's try to work this out. The spirit. The Holy Spirit. Those who possess him. He then produces in their life. As believers. The good things. The righteous deeds. The moral character. The moral goodness. The words. The deeds. All of that. Let me just give you a list I read this past week. He gives us the knowledge of God. The Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit frees believers from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 2. The Holy Spirit baptized us with, we were baptized with the Spirit, placing us into the body of Christ. If you're a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And you're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He empowers for evangelism. The Holy Spirit intercedes for believers. He sanctifies them. He makes them progressively more like Christ. He pours out God's love in their hearts. God gives believers hope. Romans 15, 13. All of this is the result of what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. And there are other things, but that's just a short list. Short list. When we walk in the Spirit, we do not fulfill the, uh, the lust of the flesh. We fulfill the requirements of the law, Romans 8, 4. The Holy Spirit illumines the mind of the believer to comprehend Scripture. These are all good things that the Spirit of God gives to us. Now, we're living in a time when all of this reality is ours. And that's what he does. That's a good thing. Notice something. It's a spiritual thing that Jesus is talking about. Most people, even in churches, think more about stuff than they do about sanctity. That's why they can pack out those prosperity churches. Because those folk aren't interested in being more like Jesus. They're interested in being more like who's got the bucks and the luxury. That's not what Jesus is about. 
Now, what all this tells us is that the Father is generous and loving to us. It's the principle. He is like that. Far more than earthly fathers who are loving to their children, but God, our Father, is far more loving and generous. So we've seen the promise, the principle. Now we look at the purpose. Verse 12 of Matthew 7. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Again, uh, the inference is drawn by the word, therefore. Jesus is drawing the conclusion from what he's already taught in verses 7 through 11. The love of our Heavenly Father must be reflected in our life toward others. Yeah, you know this is known as the golden rule, verse 12. It's been called that and used by many. This golden rule is really teaching us how to love people. But the golden rule has been enunciated in uh, negative ways. For example, the great uh, Rabbi Hillel, Jewish rabbi, said this, quote, What is hateful to yourself, do to no other. It's a negative way to address it. Others have said, quote, Do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Jesus doesn't frame it that way. He gives it in a positive way. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. Hmm. In other words, we do not wait for them to treat us the way we want to be treated. Then we respond. We do not expect them to treat us the way we want to be treated. That's how we think. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Treat people the same way you want them to treat you. It doesn't matter how they treat you. You treat them the way you want them to treat you. So how do you want to be treated? You want to be treated with love and respect and kindness. Don't you? Treat people that way. We treat them with love. Even our enemies. You see, Christians have no business acting like they're Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry. No, 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 no. We are to reflect our Father's love. We love them. Think about it. How did he love you? Hmm. Christ, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5 8. Now you notice something here at the bottom of the verse. It says, For this is the law and the prophets. That's the point. That's the point. However, you want people to treat you, sums up the sermon to this point. Just treat them that way. You know how you want to be treated. So these words, for this is the law and the prophets, really is a summation of the law and the prophets. You know, our brother read this text earlier, Matthew chapter 22. The law depends on it or hangs on it. 
love. You love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You love your fellow church members as you love yourself. You do good to them. Galatians 6.10 So when you hear the golden rule, understand what it means from Jesus' point of view. What he teaches us is we are to love people. Love them. You want to look like your father? Love them. You want to look like your savior? Love them. You say, how can I do this? See, this is where the distinction is between what the Bible teaches regarding the so-called golden rule and those who enunciate this principle who don't know the Lord. All they do, they got a job. You can't treat them that way. What we do, we pray. And our father helps us to do what he commands us to do, right? Let me conclude. Christian discipleship not only instructs us in our moral duty, but it also gives us spiritual help in carrying out the requirements that God has imposed upon us as his people. We're empowered by the Lord to do it. We are new creations in Christ. We are participants in the new covenant. The Spirit indwells us. And by the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in us, we're then able to do everything that he commands us to do, right? So you need to be about asking. So he can make it operative in your life. For your blessing and for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the word of God this morning. Um, we thank you for its clarifying uh, reality and truth. We pray that you help us to be the people of God that you call us to be. Um, help us to reflect upon what we've heard, meditate upon the, these truths, and help us to live them out. Remind us to ask, seek, and knock that we might see this in our lives more and more and more for your own glory, for the advancement of the cause of Jesus Christ, for our deepening discipleship and the consequent joy of it. And we pray these things in his blessed and holy name. Amen.